Welcome to another episode of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs as they make their way through the vast Criterion collection one title at a time, all from the comfort of the couch. I'm Adam Yurick, along with Jim Massessa. Today's episode features The Princess Bride. Jim's going to take us through the official Criterion summary and specs. A high-spirited adventure that pits true love against inconceivable odds, The Princess Bride has charmed legions of fans with its irreverent gags, eccentric ensemble, and dazzling swordplay. A kid, Fred Savage, homesick from school, grudgingly allows his grandfather, Peter Falk, to read him a dusty storybook, which is how we meet the innocent buttercup, Robin Wright, in her breakout role, about to marry the nefarious Prince Humperdinck, Chris Sarandon, though her heart belongs to Wesley, Carrie Yules. The wedding plans are interrupted, however, by a mysterious pirate, a vengeful Spaniard, and a good-natured giant in a tale of swashbuckling romance and outrageously hilarious spoofery. Directed by Rob Reiner from an endlessly quotable script by William Goldman, The Princess Bride reigns as a fairy tale classic. Doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. This movie came out in 1987. It is 98 minutes long, 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio. It is 5.1 surround sound in English. And if you're following along at home, this is criterion number 948. Yeah, great, uh, great movie. Uh, one I've seen a few times. Yes. And always enjoy watching. I feel like it's one of those, uh, I don't know if you have you heard of the podcast, uh, The Rewatchables with uh, Bill Simmons. No, no. It's a really cool movie podcast. It's basically... They talk about movies that they consider rewatchable. Hmm. So a movie that's like on TV, you always got to watch it from like a certain point on or something like that. So yeah. I've only just started listening to it. So I don't know if they've covered that before. This, this is definitely one of those rewatch. If it's on TV, I think I'm usually always going to stop and stop and watch it. This is definitely a classic from not so much like my childhood, childhood, but more like teenage years. This is something like all my friends would always quote. And, you know, if people were getting together and we were bored, we would put this on. Everybody had a VHS copy of this. It's a little slow in the middle, or at least I thought it was when I was younger. Rewatching it now, it's still great. Everything holds up. It's still funny. All the lines are witty. And I almost feel like I can appreciate some of it a little better now. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those movies that if it was made today, it would just get panned. Oh, yeah. um, And reviews because. It doesn't really take itself seriously at all. It's goofy and over the top. I think that movies today would go more for like a bathroom humor. Right. Like if it was made today, they'd be making more jokes in that realm. And I think this one is, it's, it's really smart and it all owes to the writing. I think it's very like underrated script. There's a lot of really good wordplay. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's a super quotable movie. That's definitely one of the things that I like about this movie. It's just one of those movies that is just you're waiting for your favorite scene or your favorite quote to happen. And this one just has a a lot of those moments. Yeah, it really does. And it says the script and I think the screenplay was by William Goldman and he was the original author of the book as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and he's got some pretty solid credits. I mean, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Mm -hmm. All the President's Men, great, great movie. He even wrote Misery. And he wrote two other movies that I don't think get enough credit. Absolute Power, Clint Eastwood, and The General's Daughter, John Travolta. Oh, I saw that like a one. Ni- early 2000s, yeah. late 90s movie, I think. Absolute Power's good. Again, funny, he wrote three movies, at least three movies that revolve around, I guess they don't really revolve around the president. Absolute Power is about a thief who witnesses, I think, the president committing a crime. Hmm. So I think he murders somebody. A good like popcorn movie. It's cheesy, but I kind of like it. 
But yeah, and I mean, also directed by Rob Reiner, who right all in the family. He had just done um, this is Spinal Tap. Uh, he went on to do A Few Good Men, Sleepless in Seattle, The American President. Great, great movies throughout the eighties and nineties. A Few Good Men is one of my favorite movies. Did two Aaron Sorkin movies, A Few Good Men and The American President. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think that's really the strongest part about this movie is its writing. To me, second to that would be the cast. I think it's it's an amazing cast with a bunch of people who definitely went on to have pretty strong careers. I mean, like Robin Wright, Carrie Ells. You've got Mandy, is it Patinkin? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Homeland. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Robin Wright was in Forrest Gump, House of Cards. Wallace Shawn was in My Dinner with Andre, which we checked out in episode number 12 of Criterion on the Couch. Right, right. And then, of course, you have Carrie Ellis, who's in a ton of movies in the 80s. But most importantly, he was Pierre Despero on Psych. <laughs> as well as uh, Chris Sarandon, who was also on an episode of Psych. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was on um, the episode where the, 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 the uh, think tank, he's like the famous guy that they're trying to protect. Wasn't the guy from RoboCop? Also on that episode? Yeah, he was. Yeah. yeah, that's the same. I forget what the name of that episode is, but it'll be in the show notes. But yeah, grabby Billy Crystal, Carol Kane, um, Andre the Giant. Right. I mean, the cast is just phenomenal. And I think, to me, each actor really fits their character really, really well. Yeah. Like, I especially like Wa- um, Wallace Shawn as um, Vizzini because he's just so irritating. <laughs> and like, you don't really want to see him. Like, every time he starts talking, I really just wanted him to shut up. But at the same time, he was funny and annoying and like the perfect actor to play that character. It was just really good. Yeah, he's got like the best lines too. Oh, he does. I was looking through like at all the different quotes from this movie and I would say like 80% of my favorite lines are all Vizzini. Oh, yeah. I mean, he has probably, I would say that in my opinion, the top two quotes from this movie are inconceivable. Right. And hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. Right, right. Those are just, and, and the inconceivable. And then the second, the third one would be like the whole part of inconceivable where he's like, You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> right. Which I think is just great. There's just such good writing in this movie. And then the actors just do a phenomenal job. Robin Wright did a really great job, especially early on in the movie. She says so much with her eyes. The scene where it's more like, you know, she was trying to say something to Wesley at the beginning of the movie and... Tomboy. Fetch me that picture. She was in a soap opera before this, but her first like really big movie role, I thought, was like she was very well cast. Yeah, you know, she wasn't in Psych, but the soap opera she was in was called Santa Barbara. Yeah. And Psych (laughs) takes place. Perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think she was 19, either when she auditioned or when this filmed. So this was a pretty early role for her. When you think about it, she doesn't really have that many lines in this movie. But like you said, she does do a lot of almost silent acting uh, in those kind of scenes where you're reading her face in the beginning where she's trying to tell Wesley that, well, kind of tell him that she loves him without actually saying it. Right. And then towards the end, when she's more depressed and thinking about killing herself, it's a lot of longing in her face and kind of moping around. But I think she does a good job. That is not the cheesy part of this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I love that, like, Carrie Ellis is perfectly cast, too, because he he has that perfect, proper British accent. Right. I think it just plays perfectly into his role, because 
there's not a lot of inflection in his voice. Mm-hmm. It's a very constant tone, no matter what he's saying, whether he's saying, as you wish, or he's in the battle of wits with uh, Vinzini. He's never really shouting or anything like that. It's kind of this like smooth, calm, cool, collected tone. That's kind of like, I feel like his signature thing when he's in, in films. Yeah. Like you were saying before, if they made this movie nowadays, I, I feel like that would be a part where they, somebody would try to get like Johnny Depp, maybe not right now, maybe like five, 10 years ago. Yeah. But it, it, that would ruin the movie. It's such a piratey, swashbuckling part, but at the same time, like you said, very smooth and calm and almost proper. And he just pulls that off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had heard and read that there was that William Goldman, because he, he wrote this book and then wanted to get it made into a movie. And he struggled for years to get this even like, I think over 20 years to try to get this made into a movie. So it's just kind of funny that it, it happens and it gets made and it becomes such like a cornerstone cultural movie. And you're right. It's like, there's no way they could make this movie today and have it still be the same thing. It's that like perfect fantasy storybook movie that I think today we would see like animated. Right. Definitely like a, a Shrek type movie. I think I saw something too about you, you were saying he, they tried to make this, I think in the seventies originally, and they kept having trouble with different studios. Mm-hmm. They originally wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger to play the part of Fezzik. He would be like the giant. Yeah. Even though he's, he's not really that tall. And I think that's probably one of the reasons they didn't go with him. Also, by the time they actually did make this movie, Terminator had already come out. So he was much more popular. And right. It was probably harder to get him. I think I also read, I think on IMDb, they said that Liam Neeson had actually auditioned for the part of Fezzik mm-hmm. and got turned down because he wasn't tall enough. Oh, really? Because he's like 6'3", I think. And Andre the Giant was over seven foot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. He's only 6'3". Yeah, I mean, that's still tall. But when you see the other actors standing next to Andre the Giant, like, oh, yeah. he really is a giant. Well, I, I was um, listening to one of the parts of the special features and they were interviewing William Goldman and he had said that he wrote the book. When he wrote the book, Andre the Giant was the person he had in mind when he wrote the character Fezzik. Mm. So it just kind of was perfect that they were able to get him cast in the film. There's no one else who could play that role. Like you put Arnold Schwarzenegger in it and it's a different, it's a different movie. Not because right. Arnold Schwarzenegger is not a good actor, but literally because he's not as big. Right, right. I feel like they would have done tricks like they did with uh, What's-His-Face in Lord of the Rings when they tried to do Gandalf, and they shot that differently, and they shot the actors oh, yeah. like farther away and to portray like the hobbits and stuff as smaller. You know, they'd have to do some little camera tricks. Yeah, they only, I think they only had to do that really once uh, in this movie. It was because they said that Andre the Giant had a lot of back issues after wrestling right. for so long. He couldn't actually carry um, Wesley on his back when they're fighting, mm-hmm. and so that's actually a, a stunt person that stunt guy's not as tall as Andre the Giant, but they did some camera work there, so it's harder to notice. Like, he's hunched over, so you're not really seeing them next to each other. Mm-hmm. Also, Andre the Giant is really, like, he's the heart of this movie. Oh, yeah. Wesley has a mission, and, you know, you're supposed to like him. He's the hero, but he's not as lovable. Like, Andre the Giant, even in the beginning, when they're first kidnapping Buttercup and Vizzini is telling them, what that the evil plan is, how they're going to frame this other country, and then they're going to kill her. When he finds her body dead on the Gilder frontier, his suspicions will be totally confirmed. You never say anything about killing anyone. I've hired you to help me start a war. It's a prestigious line of work with a long and glorious tradition. Yeah. 
he didn't sign up to actually hurt anybody. He's just trying to get a job. And this is the way he gets jobs is by being a thug for people. Yeah, yeah, true. I, I do like the scene uh, when he's fighting, when he first takes on Wesley. They're going back and forth and he's like, So what happens now? We face each other as God intended. Sportsman life. No tricks, no weapons. Skill again, skill along. You mean you'll put down your rock and I'll put down my sword and we'll try and kill each other like civilized people? Just he's like so calm and like he's like nice. He's like a kind giant. <laughs> I think that's one that's one of the things I like about this movie is those two scenes with Inigo Montoya and Wesley and then Wesley and uh, Fezzik. It's like Inigo Montoya is like, all right, I'm going to fight this guy and I'm going to do it left handed. But then he's like, I don't know, suppose you've got to spit things up. If you're in such a hurry, you could lower a rope or a tree branch or find something useful to do. He's like courtesy. He gives him a minute. Like he gets up and immediately Wesley draws a sword. And he's like, no, no, no. Take your time. Take your time. Well, wait, 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 wait until you're ready. Right. <laughs> it's funny. There's just so much honor in the in these thieves that, you know, and I think that just kind of just makes it really funny. Yeah. Well, honor with the two of them. But Vizzini is oh, really Vizzini. the jerk. Well, that's the funny thing about the whole premise of the movie is that she gets kidnapped because Vicini wants to start a war between two countries, but you never hear anything about the two countries other than when he's talking about it. And once he's gone, there's no word of this. There's no like a war about to happen between these two countries, or you don't hear any other character really talking about them at all. Well, Humperdinck does, but he doesn't give you really any more information than he just wants to go to war. He doesn't say why. Right, right. And I feel like that, again, goes back to the movie could have gone a different direction if it got into the two countries and like, why, why are they going to war? Right. This isn't Game of Thrones. (laughs) They're not going, they're not trying to give you the history of of some land. Yeah. Vizzini is, you know, he, he kind of gives away in the beginning that, you know, they're, they're trying to frame another country for this, but you don't necessarily know that Prince Humperdinck is the one that's behind it. When I first watched this movie, the earliest I picked up that Prince Humperdinck is really the one behind it is when he, I mean, he kind of seems troublesome anyway, but when they get to the part where he is smelling the empty tube of Iocane powder, he sniffs it and he says, Iocane, I bet my life on it. But in the scene before that, Wesley tells us Iocane powder has no smell. I smell nothing. What you do not smell is called Iocane powder. It is odorless, tasteless, dissolves instantly in liquid, and is among the more deadly poisons known to man. Hmm. Huh. Yeah. But the prince smells it, and he knows what it is, because it's a setup. He's the one who set it up. But Wesley was the one who had the Iocane powder, not... Oh, that's true, that's true. Vizzini. Man, I don't know. So that's just like a drop. That's still suspicious. Yeah. Unless he's supposed to be... Because Buttercup says, like... It does not matter where you take me. There's no greater hunter than Prince Humperdinck. He can track a falcon on a cloudy day. He can find you. Right. But you can't smell an odorless thing. I don't know. I feel like we're nitpicking on uh, a movie that doesn't need to be nitpicked. No, no, no. But that, <laughs> I always thought that part was the revelation that he's the one who set it up. But you're right. Wesley brought the Iocane powder. Right. So, hmm. Which, let's talk about that scene for a minute, because I, I think that's one of the great scenes in the movie. Right. The Battle of Wits. Exactly. He walks up and Vizzini is sitting there with like a little table. He's got like three apples, a loaf of bread, mm-hmm. a glass of wine with two cups. What is he doing? That is just the weirdest scene to me. It's just like a scene that was set up so that they could do the battle of wits. Like why was he really sitting there expecting it to be a battle of wits? 
I don't think he had anything to... Did he have like a knife on her or something that he was going to stab her with, maybe? He is holding a knife because when Wesley takes like another step forward... If you wish you're dead, by all means, keep moving forward. Let me explain. There's nothing to explain. You're trying to kidnap what I've rightfully stolen. Perhaps an arrangement can be reached? There will be no arrangement, and you're killing her. And that's when Wesley, like, stops. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. But yeah, what, why set up the food and, and all of that, unless he's trying to make a show? Like, he realizes he can't get away anymore. Wesley's going to catch him, so he's just going to, like, make his stand there. Right. My favorite part of that scene is just the the back and forth when he's just talking in circles about which cup is which. Now, a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given. I'm not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. Right. And then... To think, all that time it was your cup that was poisoned. They were both poisoned. I spent the last few years building up an immunity to Iocane powder. Reminded me of that psych episode where Lassiter gets chloroformed and he like wakes up. What happened here? Chloroform. Sneak attack. Unbeknownst to my assailant, I've slowly, methodically been building up a tolerance to chloroform over the last 15 years. When I saw that episode, <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's like the Princess Bride. So, yeah, maybe they I took mean, it. From it's the- like a super subtle reference, uh, but really good. Is there a scene in the movie that's like your favorite? Well, that specific part, that reminded me of a, a line that uh, Vizzini says. Because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. I think Australia wasn't really called Australia until 1800s, maybe. It was something like New Holland or something like that before that, when British people first colonized. It just made me wonder, like, when's this movie supposed to take place? Or is that one of those moments where they're like breaking the fourth wall and just kind of referencing things? I don't know that it's breaking the fourth wall. I think it's just that it's a fantasy movie. So they're just kind of like, whatever. Just being goofy. Just making the reference to make the reference. As far as like favorite scenes go, again, anything with Vizzini is great. His very opening line where he's like, We are but poor lost circus performers. It's such a random line that seems ill planned out, but it's hilarious. And then uh, I think when they're on the boat, before they get to the Cliffs of Insanity and Anigo sees a, a ship behind them, uh, Vizzini's like, Probably some local fisherman out for a pleasure cruise at night through eel-infested waters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's perfectly rational to him. Yeah. And then later he's like, What are fish using the same wind we are using? <laughs> that reminded me of, I, I had written down some of the, like, were these great, like, storybook names? Mm-hmm. Or, or phrases that they use that were straight out of a storybook, like... The Shrinking Eels! Or... The Cliffs of Insanity! Right. And the Pit of Despair. The Pit of Despair. And I had written down the Dread Pirate Roberts, which is a great name for a pirate, by the way. Turns out he's actually a pirate. Huh. His name was Black Bart, and he was, like, one of the most successful pirates of all time. But Dread Pirate Roberts was actually a person. Because he had so many different people playing him. Yeah, maybe. Well, so besides Vizzini, I would say that some of the subtler parts that I really enjoy are with the king. And I don't know if we have his name, but Humperdinck's father. Oh, yeah. So there's this, a scene where uh, I think Humperdinck is like announcing his marriage to the, all his like people down in the courtyard. 
and they're up on a tower, and his his mother and father are standing behind him. And while Humperdinck is talking, the king, you know, he's got his eyes are like kind of closed. It seems like he doesn't really even know where he is, but he's just kind of like waving. <laughs> Nobody can see him, but he's waving anyway because he doesn't really know what's going on. <laughs> and yeah. and later towards the end, Buttercup is like walking with him in the hallway, and she kisses him. What was that for? Because you've always been so kind to me. And I won't be seeing you again since I'm killing myself once we reach the honeymoon suite. Wouldn't that be nice? Hmm? She kissed me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she kissed me. Like, he doesn't me. know what's going on. It's so great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that scene, too. Him and Miracle Max. Like, I, I feel like oh. all of Miracle Max's stuff is great. Yeah. I mean, the Billy Crystal stuff is just... Is just completely ridiculous. I had heard that uh, Rob Reiner had to walk off of the set because he was laughing so hard. <laughs> but oh yeah, I mean, and the makeup. I think that's one thing about this movie that's interesting is the special effects don't age well, but somehow they do. Right. You look at it now and it's not as polished and it definitely feels, because again, we, we haven't touched on this too, but the movie is Peter Falk narrating, like basically right, telling right. the story, reading it's the story. Savage. To Fred Savage, his grandson, I feel like that it, the movie really feels like that. That it's yeah. not. It's like a low budget type of thing, and it's as if the grandfather was like trying to put the show on for him in his bedroom. Hmm. I think back in '87, the effects were on par with everything else that was coming out at that time. But looking back at it now, I feel like the way the movie is set up, it helps those effects age where you're not pointing something out and being like, oh my gosh, like look how terrible that is. Right. Like even the scene where that rat's in the um, in the fire swamp, the animatronics are like really slow and moving and stuff, but you're kind of expecting it to be this over-the-top farcical type of thing attacking him. Right. It's kind of okay that it's not super polished and it's not like super CG and it doesn't really look that scary because it looks like it's from a Disney ride. Right. I mean, it's so like you said, it's Peter Falk telling Fred Savage this story. So what we're seeing could just be in the imagination of Fred Savage. Right. So it's, you know, a small child imagining these things. So yeah, they're going to look a little weird and hokey. But in that in that sense, it's almost it's very similar to um, the never ending story, which is mm-hmm. yep. a child. He's not narrating, but he's reading the story. And what we see is kind of his imagination until it comes to life at the end. It has that same feel, even with the effects, like kind of hokey. Yeah. It's not necessarily supposed to look real, but it's real enough for that world. And there's not really a whole lot of effects, like special effects in this movie. It's more like you were saying, like prosthetics and and makeup. And then there's a couple scenes that were clearly on set. The whole fire swamp is on set. When they get to the bottom of the Cliffs of Insanity, you can kind of tell that the Mm -hmm. boat it's not out on the ocean anymore. It's an actual just like small, shallow water. Yeah. You know, it still fits within this world. It never pulls you out. And again, it's not, they're not trying to make you think these are real people that look like that. It's not a Game of Thrones. They're not, they're not trying to create a realistic fantasy world. It's more like you're watching a play on stage or something. Yeah, definitely. The only other, uh, I would say, favorite scene from this movie, I mean, they're all great. But if you're going to say favorite scenes, the very end between Anigo and Count Ruben, the six-fingered man, yep. where he finally corners him and, and stabs him and gives him the big... Offer me money. Yes. Power to promise me that. All that I have and more. Please. Offer me everything I ask for. 
anything you want. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah, that's a good scene. Yeah, that's that's great. And I think it's on the special features. There was an interview with Mandy Patinkin mm-hmm. saying how a couple of years earlier, his father had actually died from cancer. Oh, yeah. And so he kind of used that in all of these scenes where he's talking about, you know, avenging his father. And then he actually kind of used that for some emotion at the end. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I, the other thing about Inigo's character is his, his hair is just completely, completely ridiculous. It's so, great. I feel like it, it stands out way more than any other character in this hair in this movie. Like it's super 80s, super 80s. But do you think that's only looking back at it now or knowing what Mandy Patinkin looks like normally? I guess so. Yeah. I mean, you think about him on Homeland. Right. And he's going bald. So I think he had a, a little ponytail on one of the seasons, like real, yeah. real little. Uh, I only like watched it back. up to like season four, I think. Yeah. Kind of went downhill after that. Yeah. Yeah. I never really, I wasn't really a fan of that show. Two things that I felt were kind of, I don't want to say not impressive, but things that were kind of a non-factor for me in the movie was the music and the cinematography. Yeah. Mark Knopfler did the score. You know, there's kind of some themes in it, but there's nothing really that stands out. There's no big musical montages or anything like that. To me, like there's not like a something from that movie that I remember. And cinematography wise, too, I don't. It feels like it's the type of movie that should have had like big sweeping shots. And aside from a couple of the sunset like photos of Wesley and Buttercup, there really wasn't much in the way, which is I want to say like normally shot, I guess it it didn't feel special in that way. Like a a movie you see where you just like admire the photography in it. Yeah, it felt very flat. The colors seemed like muted. I, I don't know if it's just, you know, nowadays everything we see is like hyper colorized and uh you know everything is really intense or oversaturated sometimes no i mean i would compare it to other movies during that time period like i just don't think that they're i mean it works for the movie because like the writing and the acting is what comes through and there's no like big sweeping cinema you know cinematography in it that takes you out of that and just keeps your focus on the characters and what they're saying and actually the other thing that kind of irritated me was that there were a couple shots that were actually out of focus that were used in the film. There's a shot towards the end when uh, Buttercup's arguing with Humperdinck and it's a close up of her and she's clearly out of focus and not supposed to be. Um, I was like, "Oh, that's kind of weird." Must have been the only take that they had that was good and they had to use it, but it seemed like something that happened every now and then in films that were made in like pre 2000 where you'd have a couple scenes where they might be a little bit out of focus but they just had to use it because that's what they had sometimes i wonder when i see that if if there was something else in the shot that they tried to cut out and in cutting it out they had to like zoom in a little more and that that makes the subject out of focus yeah because it's not digital oh that's true I, i think in this scene it wasn't the case though it was just a straight up straight up shot that was just clearly like she was blurry um the music you were talking about mark knopfler he was the yeah. lead singer from Dire Straits, I think. Yeah. He did all the soundtrack music, but the song that plays at the very end, which is the only song with actual words in it, was written and performed by Willie DeVille. I looked him up. He, he kind of did a lot of solo stuff, but he played guitar with like Van Morrison, Bruce Springsteen, Tom Waits. Oh, okay. The song definitely always reminds me of this movie. I only ever hear it at the end of this movie. I've never heard it anywhere else. But it's it's not a great song. No, it's it's not good at all. Like the music is okay, 
But if you actually listen to the lyrics, the chorus of it, he's saying, my love is like a storybook story, but it's as real as the feelings I feel. My love is like a storybook story, but it's as real as the feelings I feel. That's so, it's so like bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's like badly written and cheesy. It kind of works for this movie, but I don't know. It's not great. The music just kind of takes a backseat, I think, in this movie. And there's a lot of scenes where there's not even any music at all. When they're rolling down the hill, there's no music on top of that. It's just them going like, oh, ah, ooh. Ow. Ooh. 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 Yeah, that was kind of funny. And even in like a lot of the chase scenes where Wesley is trying to catch up with Vizzini, you just hear like some trumpets blare, like. In a more modern movie, you would hear some like epic music building and, you know, there'd be a whole orchestra there. And we don't we don't get that in this movie. Yeah. The sword fighting in this movie, they actually trained yeah. For the sword fighting and all the sword fighting you see are the actual actors doing it. Yeah, I think at one point Rob Reiner had to tell them to kind of tone it down because it was too good. And they were sword fighting too fast. Oh, then he made them use their left hands. <laughs> but that's actually what's impressive about it is they learned to sword fight left-handed and right-handed. Yeah, they actually So they had to learn how to do that to be able to, to actually pull it off on screen, which is really impressive. They practiced for hours and hours and hours to, to be able to pull that off. Yeah, I think I saw that the the person who actually did the choreography for those sword fights is the same person who did it for the original Star Wars lightsaber battles. Oh, really? That's cool. So one other thing, going back to some of the quotes, two things we didn't talk about that I wanted to bring up. Two of my other favorite parts of this movie are uh, the old woman booing oh, yeah. in Buttercup's Dream. Her boo is just the best boo that there is. I really wish I could just get that like on my phone to just push (laughs) the button that someone just boo them. And I think I've booed people before just like jokingly around like friends and stuff. And it's totally from just the boo, just just booing everyone like that woman. That and the the scene with the priest where he's the wedding is just him talking. It's just I can't stop laughing when that comes on. It's so funny. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. Uh, he's okay. That's Peter Cook. I don't really know him from anything else. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it's... It, I wouldn't put it up there with some of the other scenes we talked about, but to me, it's just kind of like a funny little... Just that... that this you know whatever the the cut to that and it's this pre like bishop or whatever in this great big garb and he's just like my wedge i i i think that's just like one of the best parts yeah it's it's just like a kind of another slap that this whole kingdom is like it's kind of a joke oh yeah oh yeah exactly yeah the torture scene uh when they're um you know when when he's doing all the torture machine and <laughs> just like once his the guy I forget the actor's name but the guy who is um kind of doing all the the uh, Mel, uh the albino mel smith he uh him doing like the torture they have the torture machine that's gonna like suck a year of life out of him right and right just completely completely ridiculous and i mean that's what's funny is it 
that whole scene is ridiculous, then leads to them taking them to Miracle Max, which is even completely more ridiculous scene that, that kind of happens. It's such a good movie in that you can just watch it and laugh, and it's just like completely ridiculous. I don't know necessarily that there's like a deeper message in the film. I mean, it closes with Peter Falk kind of turning to his grandson. There's like that little bonding moment. They bond over the story because, yeah. you know, he's like, oh, I don't want him to come over. He always pinches my cheek. But by the end, you know, they kind of, you know, he asks him to come back and maybe read the story again. And of course, the, the last line in the film is the grandfather saying, as you wish, which we know means I love you. But I think it's just a good all around fun movie to be able to watch. And to me, I feel like that's what makes this a Criterion Collection film. You could debate a lot about like what makes a movie a Criterion Collection film. A lot of it has to do with distribution rights and whether they can actually put the film out on Blu-ray. Right. But to me, this is like a film that's worth preserving just because it is one of those movies that defined an era and defined a lot of people's childhood, that this was like the movie. They, they come up to the actors and quote it to them all the time. They get referenced in other TV shows and movies years later. To me, that's kind of what makes it. It's like a it's a storybook movie and kind of defines that genre. I don't know about you. Any any thoughts on on that? It was uh, inducted into the National Film Registry two years ago, I think, in 2016. So that's probably around the same time that it was being worked on by Criterion. So I I don't know if they have any connection uh, with the National Film Registry, but that's usually a good indication if. If the film's already been nominated to be inducted into the registry, then Criterion probably has similar reasons to want to put it out on Criterion. Yeah, I don't think they have any connection with them. I mean, I think the Criterion Collection, a lot of what they do revolves around whether a film's distribution rights are available or not. I mean, that's why we really don't see movies like Casablanca, The Godfather, uh, Citizen Kane. These movies aren't in the Criterion Collection because... Mm. Well, for a couple of those movies, Warner Brothers is never going to give up the distribution rights to those films. They're classic. They can put them out every now and then. They're considered some of the greatest movies ever made. Or Disney. You're not going to see a Disney movie. Right, exactly. Initially, the Criterion Collection was a lot of films that you couldn't really get anywhere. A lot of like Japanese cinema, foreign cinema that doesn't necessarily have U.S. distribution rights. Those films are more easily available for them to be able to put into the Criterion Collection. And I do think one of the big aspects of the Criterion Collection really is to catalog kind of genre-defining films. So right. there's some films that you would be like, why is that in the Criterion Collection? But really, whether you think the movie's good or not, it defined a genre or defined a point in time that films got made like this in this era, and this is the defining one. When you think about The Princess Bride, especially in the 80s, you had The Neverending Story, you mm. had Willow. In my mind, they're very similar movies and in terms of the they're storybook movies in a way. Right. Maybe Willow not so much, but to me, I think that this The Princess Bride is a good example of that late 80s, the fantasy type film, the kids fantasy type film. In the end, this is really a kids movie, if you think about it. Yeah. And, and that kind of goes back to the um, meaning or the point of this movie. I'd say there's two meanings of this movie. There's the bigger story of Peter Falk and his grandson. And in that sense, I would say this is a story about showing someone that you love them without saying that you love them. Yep. Peter Falk is showing it through actions. And I think in the story, I don't think we ever actually hear Wesley or Buttercup say, I love you, even at the end. I don't think they say it. I don't think they do either. But him going to rescue her is supposed to be him showing that he loves her. He said he would always come for her and he does. 
But putting that aside, I would say the story of The Princess Bride is more of a story about friendship and the camaraderie between Fezzik, Inigo, and Wesley, and just that they're finding friends and people that they thought were their enemies. At the end of the movie, they're all together. It's not just him and Buttercup. They all kind of ride away together. Yep. So he's found friendship where he didn't think he was going to find it. And I think that's more of a story that kids can get behind rather than, you know, the bigger love story. Right. Accept people for their faults. Right. Yeah. And then, yep. and he made use of that too. So you enjoyed this movie. Doesn't seem like a big surprise. I really no, enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah. I'd seen it a bunch of times. Yeah. No, definitely one, uh, a top, top favorite movie for me. Yeah. This is definitely a Criterion movie. I will come back to and watch a few more times. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of Criterion on the Couch. You can find the show notes at criteriononthecouch.com slash Bride. Get ready, because next time we'll be discussing Armageddon. Don't want to close my eyes. Yeah, don't close your eyes. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook. <laughs> on Twitter, we're at Criterion Couch. And on Instagram, we're at Criterion on the Couch. I'm Adam Urich with... Jim Massessa. Thanks for listening. See you next time.